We have grown up with the notion that we own the land. And that comes, that goes way back in European history. We own the land. And the indigenous people in this part of the world see themselves as part of the land. They are one of the creatures that make up all of the land. And their creatures include the water and the rocks and the earth. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Christian Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Morgan. As a lot of you who have been listening over the uh, past year or so, um, I'm going to go for a supported northbound record attempt on the 2,193 mile Appalachian Trail this coming June. And I've been doing a lot of research into the Appalachian Trail and came across the International Appalachian Trail. And one of the founding board members of this International Appalachian Trail is Don Hudson, who is today's guest. Well, it's uh, quite just an informal podcast um, and it's all based around trails, um, my podcast in general. So, you know... Um, and also, if you don't mind, I'd like to find out not just about um, the International Appalachian Trail, but I, I, I mean, it's up to you, but about you, you know, your your interest yeah. in trails yeah. and your history and things. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to um, tell you how I think I <laughs> have ended up working on trails. That's exactly what um, I want to hear. Yeah. 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 And if you want to start there, I can, I can just let you know that um, I, I had my first experience with um, a multi-day uh, wilderness adventure when I was uh, about 13. Yeah. Just 13 years old. And uh, we went on a, on a 10 day backpacking trip into uh, one of the wildest parks in the Northeastern United States called Baxter State Park. Um, the tallest mountain in Maine is Katahdin. That's where the Appalachian Trail ends. Yeah. And so as a, as a boy, I remember fondly standing atop that mountain, having climbed it for the very first time. I've since climbed it about 120 times, but I climbed it for the first time then and looking out over that part of Maine, which um, is vast uh, and largely undeveloped. It's, it's one of the largest areas in the continental United States that is um, unbroken forest. And when you stand on that mountain and look out, um, it's a remarkable um, view. It's, it's um, I think, I think I I came to, I mean, I was obviously knocked off my socks when when I saw it, yeah. but I'm not sure I really thought much about it. And in the in the ensuing years, I've thought a lot about it. Um, so that's probably where my enjoyment for um, long distance adventures began. And as I grew older, I. Uh, gained the skills and confidence in others to allow me to lead those trips as I was older. And um, in my mid, early, early 20s, um, in the early 1970s, I began to lead um, a pretty long canoe expeditions of um, five, six, seven, eight weeks in length. Wow. In central Quebec. Real adventures. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the trails, I mean, we were following water trails, if you will, um, through through the wilderness there in central Quebec. And there are similar trails. You fast forward to now, I've I've just finished or I'm in my last year of tenure on the board of directors for one of the longest um, official canoe routes called the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, which extends from the north, the northernmost uh, uh, corner, northeasternmost corner of Maine, yeah. Fort Kent, uh, just across the St. John River from um, 
New Brunswick and Quebec, uh, all the way to uh, the Adirondacks, to uh, Old Forge, New York. And that's a, that's a canoe, that's a water route that follows um, uh, First Nations or indigenous people's canoe routes. What, what um, is the distance of that one? Uh, it's about 740 miles. Yeah. Um, 741 or something like that. Um, it includes obviously numerous portages, but so too did those native canoe routes um, in order to get over heights of land and things like that to get from one drainage into another drainage. Mm. So I've been, I've been interested in trails. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm a, a scientist, a, a natural scientist, a botanist, um, an ecologist, and an educator. And so trails have become a great medium for the work that I ended up doing for the bulk of my working life. Mm. I uh, worked at and later um, became the head of an environmental education organization that had both uh, continues to have both residential programs and these expedition type uh, programs. And I came to understand that um, these are these are wonderful opportunities that help people, young people in particular, to sort of grow into their ability mm. and to um, learn skills not only um, the sort of physical skills that you need in order to paddle a canoe or to pick it up out of the water and put it on your, on your shoulders and carry it for a mile, but also the, the skills that you need to keep a, um, a group of a dozen individuals um, working together and not bickering yeah. too much and um, working through um, emotional conflicts, working through physical conflicts, working through natural stuff like bad weather. I remember the very first trip that I led with, um, with boys in the wilderness of central Quebec it was 35 days in length. And it rained for 32 of those days, at least for an hour or two every day. And by the end of that time, we really learned, <laughs> we le really, really learned how to set up a camp and how to break a camp in the rain and how to keep our kit mostly dry or how to dry it quickly um, if we needed to. And um, I'll never forget that trip. And I'm sure that the boys who are now middle-aged men who went on that trip in 1975. Let's see, how old would they be now if they were 16 and 17? And you do the math, you know, they're, they're nearly 60 years old. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I know they still remember it because occasionally I hear from one or the other of them and they, you know, remind me of a story uh, that comes from that experience. So um, yeah, I got into this. I, and the, and the, the reason bringing it back to the International Appalachian Trail, the reason that that the fellow who came up with the idea, fellow by the name of Dick Anderson, mm -hmm. Dick Anderson had been the, um, the commissioner of the main department of conservation in the late 70s, early 1980s. And after he finished his tenure, when a new governor was elected and appointed a new commissioner, um, in the years following that, I came to know Dick through a couple of different projects and uh, traveled with him to the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec in the, in the late 1980s, early 90s. And so, and so he came to know me and knew what I did and knew, knew what my experiences were. And so when this idea of making a trail from the end of the Appalachian Trail into Canada popped into his head, um, he called me up 
he he tells me that that after talking about it with his wife, I was the first person he called um, because when did, he when, when was it he told you this? He he called me on a, a Friday evening in the middle of October, nineteen ninety three. Okay, yeah. Um, and we met the next morning in the in the town uh, next to the one. I live on an island. Um, it's pretty close to the mainland. You'd hardly know it's an island. Um, you know, you cross a bridge to go onto it. But uh, uh, I live near the town of Bath, named for your Bath. And um, so Dick and I met uh, at a at a coffee shop on the main street in Bath the next morning, and he pulled out a map. Um, it was a very interesting map. Um, it was it was uh, it was just a map of features. There were no political. There were a few cities identified, so you could have a little orientation. But otherwise, it was free of of uh, any political boundaries. It was. It just showed. It, and it was a relief map, so it showed elevation and changing colors. And it showed that the Appalachian Mountains extend directly through New Brunswick to the end of the Gas Bay. And the map was big enough to show a corner of Newfoundland. And so, you know, continuing right on through. And he said, what do you think of the idea? He didn't tell me what the idea was Friday night. He said, come and come and talk to me. So uh, we sat down with a cup of coffee. He pulled out this map and he said, what do you think if we make a trail from that connects the three highest points in Maine, New Brunswick and Quebec? And I said, it's a great idea, Dick. I also said, and they're going to hate it <laughs> because, you know, once you have established boundaries on things, people don't like to change those boundaries. So the Appalachian Trail is actually the equivalent of a national park in the United States. It has a beginning, yeah. a brass plaque, <laughs> and a beginning on Springer Mountain, and it has um, an end in Katahdin. There's no brass plaque on Katahdin, but there's a wooden sign that, that tells you you're here. Yeah. Um, in case you didn't know, <laughs> this is the top of Katahdin. And um, so I... I joked with him that people weren't going to like it because um, there had been a number of proposals to change the limits of the Appalachian Trail that I knew had known about in previous in the previous decades, and they were always resisted vigorously. Um, in part because there's a whole community that's built around loving it and maintaining it and and um, making sure that the facilities for camping are well taken care of and that the trail is open to hikers every spring, clearing in our part of the world, trees fall down over the trail every month. And you gotta have an army of volunteers to make sure that it's, it's uh, clear. So those people hold that, you know, they hold that like a vessel and take care of it. So we quickly realized that if we called our trail a connecting trail, that we weren't going to change the limits of the Appalachian Trail. We're just going to add to it. Yeah. And we are going to add to it a new trail that meets end to end. You know, a hundred years from now, it may be the same trail. But right now in this community, in the world we live in right now, it's a connecting trail. Yeah. And um, it took us years and years to, um, it's probably getting way down into the, way too far down into the weeds, but the people who own that vast forest land that I described to you, um, they don't like trails. Mm. Um, trails get in the way of forest management, particularly trails like the Appalachian Trail that are protected <laughs> a national scenic trail. You can't drive uh, uh, a forestry vehicle, what we call a skitter, 
yeah. in the United States. You can't drive one of those monstrous tractors across the trail. There are a few designated places in Maine where vehicles can cross the trail. So the large landowners who are managing all of that land for timber production, they don't like the AT, never did. And, um, and you know, it was fine when it was, when it was a private entity, they could do things. And, you know, the nonprofit organization looked after it, really had no power to uh, prevent uh, cutting too close to the trail or uh, interfering with view sheds from the trail. But as soon as it became a national scenic trail, mm. things changed. So, yeah, we proposed it and the loudest objections came from the large landowners. And they said they would never let us put the trail into the woods. So um, we did what all Davids do in conflicts with Goliath. We declared victory and we just rooted the trail initially on the side of the road. Yeah. We said, we're going to get from here to here and we're going to just going to do it walking on the public ways. And, you know, we win. And over time, we've sort of worn them down. Um, it helped to have a new owner of about a 90,000 acres east of Baxter State Park, which is, if you, if you can picture the state of Maine, the IAT runs from the, the Baxter State Park is just about in the geographic center of the state. And from that point, the trail runs northeast to the border with New Brunswick. And the first 30 miles of it now runs through um, a national monument, which is one step down from a national park in the United States. A woman by the name of Roxanne Quimby, who founded Burt's Bees, the, the personal care uh, products company, bought that land and allowed us to put the trail, to build um, four or five campsites on her land. Uh, we uh, built the trail on the first 30 miles. And over the years, we've added more sections of trail off the, off the, uh, off the roads. Yeah. 30, 35% when the, when the AT began more than 80 years ago, almost 40% of it was road walking. And now there are only a few miles left of, uh, that can't really be avoided of walking on the side of the road. Otherwise it's all in the, it's all off roads and in the woods. And I would imagine it'll take us a couple more decades before we get the section, the 130 miles of Maine. Now, probably, well, over 50%, probably closer to 70% of the trail now in Maine of the 130 miles is off the road. Maybe 75. I'd, I'd have to go back and do the math, but we've That's great know, virtually nothing to 75, you know, virtually nothing around 2000. We, we, can, we completed the route that, that Dick had proposed from Maine to Quebec. We completed that route in um, 2000. Started in 1994, we announced the trail at an Earth Day press conference, uh, April 22nd, 1994. And we finished the trail to Quebec um, all the way to the end of the gas bay um, in 2000. And it was two years later, November of 2002, that two people, the two hiking enthusiasts from Newfoundland came to a, a board meeting in New Brunswick, board meeting of the organizers, we organizers from the three provinces, from the one state and the two provinces, came to our meeting and they proposed that we add Newfoundland. And they made the same argument that we had made. They said, forget the same months. So um, we said, why not? And, uh, and then it, it was about five years later when we were meeting, we held a meeting in Nova Scotia because the hiking group Hike Nova Scotia wanted to 
make the point that you can't get from you can't get to the ferry that takes you across the Cabot Strait to Newfoundland unless you walk through Nova Scotia. So we added Nova Scotia. And then the next year, 2009, we added Prince Edward Island. So now New Brunswick, Quebec, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland are all part of the International Appalachian Trail. And so that was the second phase of development. And we thought we were finished. Trail's done in North America. And then two geologists from Scotland got in touch with us in March, 2009 and said, would you guys come over here and talk with us about this trail? And uh, so they invited us to meetings in Edinburgh at the university where the British Geological Survey in Scotland is headquartered at Edinburgh, uh, University of Edinburgh. And uh, we held meetings with county councils in Fort William and then farther north in Northwest Scotland. And uh, the reason they invited us was because these geologists were advising people who were proposing geoparks. Part of the, at the time it was an EU sponsored program, Geoparks 2009. It has now become um, uh, on the same level of, of uh, I don't know what you would what word to use, but it's equivalent to the Man in the Biosphere program as as part of uh, the UN UNESCO program. So, yeah. geoparks are now embraced by the UN. They started as an EU initiative. So um, these communities were proposing geoparks. Fort William was uh, proposed Loch Aber uh, geopark, which which includes Ben Nevis and uh, and a number of other remarkable geological features in that part of the world. And um, they, they, we talked about the fact that you call the mountains, the Caledonides, the Caledonian mountains. Yeah. They're, they're the same rocks as the Appalachian mountains. We have different names for them, but they're the same rocks. They were born, if you will, at the same time. And they were part of a massive mountain range in the middle of Pangaea. And the Atlantic Ocean began to open about quarter billion years ago and separated those mountains on both sides of what is now the North Atlantic Ocean Basin. So these geologists were pushing us to say, what if we include our trails? and celebrate our common heritage, our common geological heritage, which is like a first stepping point to talking about other shared values. Yeah. Um, particularly the shared value of common nature. You know, the last and the sort of hardest one to talk about are are the sort of shared human values that sadly um, we often have difficulty in talking about because we see really sort of ridiculous differences of race or other kind of heritage and background. And we're struggling with that in Maine right now um, in, in trying to get to some kind of reconcilia reconciliation with the um, original indigenous people who still live here in Maine. But, you know, so those, that's the hardest part that, of the work. The geology in some ways is the easiest first step to say, look, we're all that we're all on the same ground. And that ground starts from where you're going to start your hike, even further South flag mountain, Georgia, uh, on the Eastern coast of the United States. And it runs all the way up the Eastern coast of the United States and all the way down to the, uh, parts of the Atlas Mountains in, in uh, Morocco, in North Africa. Um, it's a complicated story. Not all the Atlas Mountains are, are of the same origin, but that's also true in, in Europe. Yeah. Not all of the, of the European plain that you have to cross over in France is Appalachian in origin. The, the 
parts of Western France, for example, Brittany and that part are the same terrain as, as uh, the British Isles and Ireland and we on this side. Um, and then you pick it back up again in Southern France and in Spain and Portugal. And so it's a little bit of island hopping, if you will, to connect all these geologic points, but it's a great, it's a great story. I think one of the reasons that it resonates with so many people is that it's simple. I mean, it's sort of hard to comprehend a quarter of a billion years, 250 million years. You know, we, our time frames are a hundred years. Yeah. You know, a human life, a hundred years. And we think that's a vast amount of time. I mean, I'm 70 years old, you know, may I have 30 more, please. Um, you know, that's a vast amount of time. And yet now you're telling me that the earth I'm standing on is 250 million of those. Wow. You know, it's a hard thing, but once you sort of get your ha hand around it, your mind around it, um, it's pretty easy. We're on the same rocks. Um, and, and when you do your hike, I know you're going to see that. I mean, you can't help but see it. When you're moving quickly, I know you're going to do it quickly. When you're moving quickly across that terrain, those rocks are going to look and feel like Ben Nevis um, or the Cairngorms. I mean, you're going to think, geez, I've, I've stepped on rocks like this before. <laughs> they look just like them. And um, the, the, the cool thing about the IAT in Maine is that um, there are fossils that you can see right on the trail, if you keep your eyes open, on the IAT in Maine, yeah. or close to the trail. You take a little side, side, couple hundred yards to the east branch of the Penobscot River. You can see fossils that fossil shellfish, little tiny clam-like critters called brachiopods that are identical, identical. In fact, they're European in origin. They're Welsh and Irish. They lived on the earth when, when they were part of what is now Europe and they were separated um, by this opening of the Atlantic Ocean. And that, that evidence was um, published in 1962 and it helped to sort of flip the geologic community and the full scientific community to accept plate tectonics and continental drift as the way the world works. And so those little fossils are right along our trail. And uh, so we like talking about them, especially because there are trails that are part of the IAT um, like the trail that goes from Sleeve League in Donegal clear across to Larne, which is uh, just north of Belfast in Northern Ireland, or along the Welsh coast where similar fossils can be found if you know where to look. Anyway, um, that's, well, that's one of the reasons that we we like the story that this, you know, a trail, just like the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, a trail, trails have stories. You know, why did somebody create this canoe trail? Well, they did it to celebrate the fact that people have been moving across this landscape since the ice left. The ice left Northern Maine probably somewhere between 12 and 15,000 years ago. And there were people there immediately moving across that landscape in simple canoes, simple boats um, over, the, over the centuries that they were there before us, they learned to build canoes out of birch bark. And so they made those journeys in lighter boats that they could pick up when they were doing it with dugouts, um, they basically just used the dugout like, um, like you'd use mass transit. You know, you take it across and you leave it because you're not going to pick it up and carry it a mile. And you walk the mile and there's another dugout. Is it, is it, dug, is it a dugout like a large log? That's yeah, like a large log. And, yeah. you know, so 
the earliest canoes in the record in Maine were dugouts and they were mostly used on the coast. But as people learned, invented um, in this part of the world, making basically a skin boat out of the skin they used was birch. People were making skin boats in the far north out of the hides of marine mammals, um, Inuit. Um, but the, in the interior part of Maine, they learned how, and in interior part of Northeastern United States and adjacent Canada, they learned how to make um, canoes from uh, birch bark, which is uh, very durable, waterproof. Um, and anyway, so that trail was built to celebrate that, that legacy and that history. And so every trail has its, every trail has its story. And that's, what's great about them. I'd like to um, ask you about the, the Southern part um, before um, the Southern terminus of the yeah. Appalachian Trail. So yeah. is the international Appalachian Trail starting from, I think, is it uh, the very bottom um, Southeast of the country in Florida? No, that, that um, we, we uh, because the 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 geology south of there's a mountain in northeast Alabama, which yeah. is north of Florida and west of Georgia. That uh, that mountain is the last of that geologic, the Appalachian geologic terrain. When you move south from there on our continent, eastern part of our continent, all of those sediments south of there are of a different age, mm -hmm. different origin, not the same as, as, as ours. Ours dive deeply below those coastal sediments, and then they pop up again in mountains in the middle of the United States, in the southwestern United States the Wachita Mountains, the Wichita Mountains in Arkansas and adjacent Oklahoma. And then finally in the Marathon region of West Texas before they pop up again in Sonora in, the, in Mexico. We haven't gone so far as to try to link those points. We say the trail begins on flag. There's a great hiker who's, who starts today. You're interviewing <laughs> me on March 1st and Eb Eberhardt, Sonny Eberhardt, 84 yeah. years young, starting north on the AT today Wow! at Flag Mountain. And I mean, he's walking, he's starting from Flag Mountain. He's going, he's going to walk to, um, to uh, Springer. Yeah. And then he's going to walk north on the AT. And um, if he finishes, probably sometime in July, He's thinking, we had an email exchange with him just the other day. He's a great friend of the IAT because he was one of the first people who walked the entire length of it before it grew, before it grew to include stuff on the other side of the Atlantic. He walked, he was the first person to walk the whole darn thing. But yeah. on that hike, he actually walked from Key West, Florida, yeah, wow. all the way to Belle Isle. Um, and when Atlanta. was that? He did, when, was, when was it that um, he did that? Oh boy, it was the mid 90s. It was 96 or 97, I think. Okay, so just after you'd, you'd uh, unveiled it to the world. Yeah, I mean, before, yeah. uh, let's see. No, no um, when did he do? When did he first do it? The first, no, no, he did it. Oh boy, would have been a little bit later. Okay. Would have been a little bit later. Um, Late 90s. Early 2000s, because. Okay. We had, it was after Newfoundland came along. So it was 2003, 2004. Yeah. Anyway, um, he was the first, he, he was the, 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 the first walk of, he did the first walk that included the first section um, ending in Quebec before we added Newfoundland. Mm. He did that section uh, in the late nineties. And um and walked in both directions. Um, and then he came back and walked, walked it again and walked to Newfoundland. He, he's going to do probably 15, 20 miles a day, he thinks, at 84, which is not too shabby. 
And um, so he'll get to Maine in sometime in late June, early July, if he gets slowed down early August. Um, so it's possible that when you're coming through in, in late July, yeah, he, um, you're going to pass him. You can't miss him. He's the, he's the guy who's 84. Okay. <laughs> you may see a few other old people on the trail, but they're not through. I can, and he's got long flowing. I'll have to send you a picture of him. He's got okay. long flowing white hair. He looks like father Christmas, <laughs> only a little more fit than father Christmas. How far is it from flag mountain to Springer? Oh boy. Um, Round I, I think it's about 300 miles, maybe. Wow. So that's a, and he's starting today from Flag Mountain. He's starting today from Flag. He's the caretaker at Flag. There are a set of cabins up there and, he, and his job is to take care of those. What so he's, wow. he's got somebody else uh, who will be the caretaker while he's gone. Um, and um, yeah, he's starting today. And if he finishes it, he will be the oldest person to have ever done a through hike on the AT mm. by three or four years, I think. Yeah. Um, and um, he's a great guy. And uh, he was, he was our first, one of our first, what we call our ambassadors. Yeah. He helped to um, what you guys who do the long distance stuff. Yeah. You put trails on maps. Yeah. You're the ones who really bring them alive. Those of us who walk sections of them, want, you know, we help, but it's really that through hikers who draw attention to the fact that this thing exists. And um, more so than any other group of people, those who do the long distance hikes are really the, as we say, you, you know, you put the trail on the map. Can I uh, go back a little bit, Don, to yeah. when you said, um, so you started leading canoe expeditions, you know, and your yep. first one was 35 days back in the uh, mid seventies. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you're in your mid twenties there. Yep. So had you experienced these expeditions, not as a leader, but as a participant prior to that? Yes. I, um, but the longest ones that I'd ever experienced prior to that as a participant were just 10 days in length. Yeah. So um, still enough, um, uh, enough amount of time to be, um, have impression on you as a, as a, Oh, uh, absolutely. Young, man or a young boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then as a young man growing up and going to college, you know, I, I would hear about these amazing people who walked the entire Appalachian trail mm. <laughs> and, you know, and they were, you know, we held them up like they were gods in those days, in the early seventies, late 60s, early 70s, there weren't too many people who walked yeah. the entire Appalachian Trail. There were fewer than a thousand. There were probably just a couple hundred at the most who had done the whole thing. Um, equipment was not as, uh, uh, light equipment hadn't been advanced. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, the kind of uh, technical support that, that lightness really provides um, has really changed the way we do things. And well, um, well, look at Grandma Gatewood, you know, I mean, Grandma yeah. Gatewood, it, for anyone who doesn't know her, she has books about her. I think, I don't know if she's written them herself, but she's an, an amazing, um, prolific um, walker hiker. Yeah. Uh, and, and going sleeping just on the side of the trail and, and just right. carry. <laughs> You know, just very basic, you know. Um, so, yeah, my my um, admiration definitely goes out to the pioneers, I think, you know, yeah. who started yeah. this. Well, yeah. Have you... My, uh, oh, our older son hiked southbound in 2001. And by the time they got um, out of Maine, he and his hiking partner... Um, had really stripped down to the bare minimum. Um, they had carried a tent in two parts, I think, and they got rid of it. They yeah. used a they used a, a 
a sheet of of tie par and a, and a, another sheet of plastic and had you know rudimentary shelter um, they made little alcohol stoves out of beer cans and um, and had really reduced their weight this was you know 20 years ago um, down to you know under 30 pounds and it was over 50 when they started and so um, they uh, I think that that um, uh, and the interest in long distance hiking seems to have grown. Um, what kind of things would you say? Uh, so your son finished, I take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what, as you said, he started with a fifty pound pack. Um, he yeah. ended up finishing with half of that. Right. So obviously you can plan as much as you like, but it seems that people, if it's the Appalachian Trail or or any long term adventure, seem to learn as they go along. And and I think you evolve and and like you said, you find out about yourself. What are some of the qualities do you think that kind of long distance hiking and getting out into nature can provide a person? Well, I th- I think um First and foremost, I think you um, you learn what you are physically capable of doing. That in fact, you can paddle a canoe all day long. Mm. You can pick it up and carry it two miles. Um, you can walk uh, twenty five miles uh, up and over mountains and down the other side. And so you, you learn what your, what your physical body can do. You also learn, I think, um, how to take care of it. Um, how, you know, you, you learn usually through errors and accidents, um, what can hurt you. And, and um, the older you get, um, you, you learn about the value of warming up <laughs> before you start out and in whatever ways you choose to sort of get your muscles warmed up before you put them to work. Um, that's especially important. I, I walked the, the, the IAT in Maine, which is 130 miles um, in about um, six days or something like that. I, the longest day I had was about 31 miles. Um, Pretty speedy. And so I, you know, I, I, that was, you know, three years ago. And I, I, I walked on sections of the IAT all over the place, but I hadn't walked a distinct section of it over. And I thought, you know, I need to do this. So I, um, and every morning I found ways to sort of warm myself up and move around and, and uh, get myself um, get my muscles warmed up before I started my walk. Anyway, um, I think you also, um, um, you learn how to sort of reset your compass to say, okay, I'm going to, you may be tired mentally or physically. And yet, um, You've set yourself a challenge. Um, you need to get to this point or the next point. And you learn how to um, make the mental adjustments that say, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, and I want to do this. Uh, and some hikers, um, I, I met a woman who had set out to walk um, she was from Florida. She had set out to walk from the main New Brunswick border um, home to Florida. And she stopped somewhere in New Hampshire. Um, it had become um, too much uh, physically. Her knees were, were screaming and, and she realized, I can't do this. And it was really hard for her to stop. Um, and I occasionally see posts of her. She now living in Ecuador 
um, um, she just posted this morning about hiking a mountain in Ecuador. So she hasn't lost her her love of getting out and walking hills. Um, she's just physically had to give up. So I think it also teaches you things like that. I mean, there are times when it, it, when you have to say can't go on. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's an enriching experience physically and mentally. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and um, and from the from a point of view of of a sense of community as well. There's a group here in the United States called the Appalachian Long Distance Hikers Association, and under non-COVID conditions, they ordinarily get together every October in some place not too far from the AT, um, from usually from somewhere in Virginia to Northern Massachusetts, they hold their, um, they hold their, their gathering. And it's a, it's a great long weekend where people make presentations about hikes. The last one that we went to pre COVID in 19, in 2019, um, one of the presentations we gave a presentation about sort of an update on trail activities in Europe. And then uh, in a later session, a woman um, made a presentation about walking from Sleeve League to Larne and, and sort of celebrating the differences that one encounters in hiking in Europe as compared to hiking in the United States. And um, staying overnight in pubs and things like that, rather than um, uh, shelters. Yeah, rather than staying in shelters or carrying a tent, things like that. So um, that's there's a there's a group that in this country that's that celebrates it in a good way, in a really good way, and helps to promote. Um, it's a good venue for. Um, finding new volunteers to help take care of the trail. There's a lot of work that has to be done to keep a trail passable, um, particularly in high, sort of high traffic areas like the White Mountains of, of New Hampshire. When you go through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, you are going to see some pretty sophisticatedly maintained uh, rock steps and hardening of the trail so that the thousands of feet that are on them mm. every week uh, don't wear too much. Um, it's They've done a spectacular job. The Appalachian Mountain Club has done a spe spectacular job over the decades in hardening and hardening the trail in a way that, that uh, sort of fits in with the with the surroundings I, um i don't i i've had the appalachian mountain club on um i think it was james wrigley uh who came on the podcast oh great yeah i think it was james i hope i haven't got his name wrong but a representative and yeah he again the same as you got into it from quite a young age uh, got yeah. into being out in nature and eventually i think i'm not sure of his age but it became his career path in life and um yeah. It's so wonderful to see how these young experiences. So if you're enriching uh, you, the youth with the experiences as, that you've spoken about, it can change somebody's path in life. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just as that fellow from the AMC that you spoke with, that's, that's, that's pretty much what happened to me. I, I ended up uh, working at an organization whose purpose it was to to help people be comfortable in the outdoors and to celebrate um, the nature. And to, um, we, we used to say that, uh, and I guess they still say, I haven't worked there for 10 years, but that we helped young people grow and uh, in community with others in nature. And so every summer, 500 kids would have some kind of an adventure like the ones that I described to you. And the older the kids get, the bigger the adventures, the longer 
Um, the, the big canoeing adventure now at this place called Chiwanki. People can find out about it if they go to chewonki.org. The longest adventure now for the oldest kids um, is uh, the George River, which flows from the highlands of central Quebec to the Angava, to Angava Bay. And uh, that's a wild canoe route. That's the, that's the wildest river in Eastern North America, the George River. It is amazing. And uh, when I paddled it, um, in 1995 with a group of people, uh, we saw a handful of caribou. When we paddled the Depaw River, which flows from near Shefferville down to Indian House Lake, uh, we saw 5,000 caribou. <laughs> it was wild. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah the, I spent my entire life um, doing things like that or helping other, you know, as I grew older and, 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 uh, came into more leadership positions, yeah. you know, I was sort of farther away from the direct experiences, but basically doing work to make sure that, that other people could do what I did when I was in my twenties. Yeah. But it sounds like you made sure you revisited a couple of years ago by doing that. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, and yeah. I want to know, Don, what were some of your warmups um, that you did to get you going in the morning? Can you share those? Yeah, I, um, there, um, there are some um, simple um, sort of uh, le- uh, one cold morning. I did it while I was still in my sleeping bag, sort of drawing okay. my knees up to my chest, brilliant, and then extending my legs as far forward as I could, point my toes, Stretching and them. holding them, rid- you know, holding them rigid, and then drawing them back up again. That's- um, that's a great full body exercise stretch there. That's before and, you even stand up. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then doing big, slow circles with my shoulders, you know, we're, we're so much movement is circular. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and I still do them now because, you know, I'm great. 70 years old. So I get up, I'm a little stiff. So, um, doing um, movements that are circular and get joints moving. Um, I, you know, obviously I don't have a stationary bike on a trail, but every morning I ride a stationary bike for five or 10 minutes um, pretty vigorously to help um, uh, keep my knees supple in particular really is helpful. For the the listeners out there, um, Don's on my computer screen here, and he looks like an age category Ironman elite champion. So you're in great <laughs> shape, Don. <laughs> anyway, I I uh, I aim to uh, my my own dad uh, died when I was a young man. He was only right, 49, right. and and I swore that I would live long enough to know my kids as an adult as 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 they are adults to to have an adult relationship with, with yeah. our children, which I'm now having. Um, they're 38 and 38 and about to be 35 and they have kids. So I, I made it to the point. I'm sad. My father never got to meet our kids. Yeah. Um, so that's my goal. <laughs> no, it's a great relationship. I have now a, an adult relationship with my father, which I didn't appreciate when I was a child because I wasn't an adult. But I understand what you're talking about. It's a it's a lovely experience in life to have. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're never not your father's son. You never move away from that relationship, but you yeah. but you think about things differently together. Um, and it's, I've learned it's, it's a growing experience anyway. Yeah. 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 Well, um, what, what a fantastic, like an education for me and for the the listeners out there as well. Um, uh, hey, Don, have you, I think you're frozen there. Oh, are you still there? No, you're still there. You, <laughs> your amazing, your abilities to stay still made me think my scheme was frozen. <laughs> Very attentive. So, um, no, I appreciate your time. 
um, you, you know, the history that you've shared with us. Just before you go, um, I wondered if, and I know it, you can't really touch on this, this is a whole nother podcast series, but maybe you could just highlight the indigenous people maybe in your area. And I'd love to hear about just a brief history, if you could. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I, uh, I've come to this, to um, a special year-long program that was set up between the conservation community in Maine and um, the four federally recognized tribes in Maine and one that is not yet federally recognized. And we don't need to get into complex law about what recognition, recognition means, but there are four tribes that are the uh, Passamaquoddy, the Penobscot, Micmac, and Maliseet, all part of what is referred to as the Wabanaki Confederation. Those people um, were here on this land um, from the time the ice left. We were ice covered uh, I think the coast began to emerge. Um, about two and a half thousand years ago. Well, no. the present day coastline was set about 5,000, but it was ice free about 12 or 13,000 years ago. And people began to occupy the, the, uh, the ice free part of the coast and then moved into the rivers and whatnot as the ice left. So those people are still here. Mm. Um, and it's a very sad history. <laughs> Colonization is awful. Mm. And uh, so we're learning about, about uh, from the point of view of the tribes through learning experiences they're providing for us, what our sort of invasion of their land um, has meant to them through time. And the goal is to work towards some kind of reconciliation. Um, and I'm not sure what shape that reconciliation will take, but it will have to do with land and how we think about land. Mm. You know, we Westerners, Western European types, we have grown up with the notion that we own the land. And that comes, that goes way back in European history. We own the land. And the indigenous people in this part of the world see themselves as part of the land. Yeah. They are one yeah. of the creatures that make up all of the land. And their creatures include the water and the rocks and the earth. They look at, at what we think of as inanimate, as part of the whole world, both the inanimate and animate. And so I think reconciliation will, when it finally comes, will bring, I think bring that larger, bring that worldview into clearer focus. It doesn't mean we will stop owning land. Mm -hmm. But maybe we'll think about the fact that um, there still are people here who look at the land and don't think about land ownership, who moved across the land freely mm -hmm. and did so to find important things in their culture. Well, like birch trees to make canoes. Mm -hmm. Well, in this day and age, it's harder for them to do that because we've locked up, <laughs> we've locked up the land. They can't get access to birch trees. So um, there will be a reconciliation. I think it'll come in through decades. And as I have described it to people who ask me what this year long seminar has meant to me, I say that I'm learning to be the best possible guest that I can be in someone else's house because I'm living in someone's homeland. I'm living in someone's house. 
when I'm out there on the land. And so I've got to learn to walk with that in mind and with respect for all the values that others see in that land rather than to see it as something to exploit, as something to manage, as something to uh, control. And so um, that's going to be my goal for my my last years is to work on being the best possible guest I can be and to find ways um, to make connections with those First Nations people. And per perhaps if, if a relationship can be built between for Maine, for us in the IAT, it would be Penobscot, Maliseet, and Mi'kmaq communities to seek some kind of, of um, agreement hmm. for our trail. Um, that isn't a land ownership agreement. May I put my trail on your land, but I want to walk on, on your homeland how, how, number one, may we do that? And number two, how would you like us to do it? Yeah. What would you like us to think about? The people who were here traveled all over the land. They had their part of the homeland and they had special arrangements and agreements with neighboring tribes about traveling back and forth. And so I want to learn about that and understand um, you know, what in a symbolic way would be helpful in me saying to a community of people, I see you. Mm -hmm. yeah. I see you. You exist. Yeah. Um, we can't go back and relive 400 years of brutal colonization, but going forward, how may we live together? on this land and, and, you know, be a little humble about the fact that you've basically invaded somebody else's house. Yeah. Ah, anyway, like, lots that, to think that, about. That will stay with me. You know, I don't own the land. I am the land. That's so powerful. I mean, you know, it, it makes me think that these experiences in nature with modern, you know, like, you know, people from the West is almost experiencing life as a, um, an indigenous person and right. it's almost a lesson in being human i think through yeah. hiking is almost okay let's uh, let's just take a lesson on what it's like to be human you know right. i mean wow right. and you know some of the first um <laughs> some of the first long distance hikes were the the um the dark the deep dark history of 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 and and you have it in you have it in in the British Isles of the various people who lived there the Neolithic people who lived there where they came from, you know they they made long journeys to yeah. get um, uh, to the British Isles um, and so you're right in a in a way um, we're hoping to learn more about what it means to be human by essentially doing these long migrations well don uh, i think that's a great note to end on thanks for your time i like to say bye in person but i'll end the podcast now uh, just before we sign off off of zoom is there anything you'd like to um leave uh for people to maybe go and visit i know you mentioned the one organization but yeah um and they can also find um if they visit uh main m-a-i-n-e-i-a-t dot org uh, from that website they can uh, find all of the national uh, websites for sections of the trail um, there's a link from the main page uh, to the what we call the council and there they can find uh, websites if they want to have a hike on the iat in portugal for example they can yeah. go to the portugal page so yeah that that would be a good one um, and um, yeah, uh, get out there and however you do it, by boat or on foot, take a long journey. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, with Don and I. I was educated so much by Don. 
Um, his knowledge is beyond my imagination. It's vast. You know, he is able to recite names, places, dates. What an impressive, inspirational fellow. Um, and anyone who wants to find out more about the International Appalachian Trail, go to the links that Don has mentioned. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I hope you um, are enjoying my show. If you do like it, please share it with your friends. Subscribe and give me a um, rating. That would be really good. Give me some feedback. Uh, the Appalachian Trail and my training can all be followed on my Instagram page, which is Christian Ultra. So that's K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, Ultra, U-L-T-R-A. So uh, that's where my training kind of um, goes down and, and, and so on. Uh, anyone interested in online run coaching, go and check out my website, spelt the same as my Instagram name, ChristianUltra.com. And uh, people uh, anywhere, any country, uh, anything that you want training for and help with preparing for an FKT or anything like that, Go and check out my site. I can help mentor you towards your goals. Got 20 years experience, um, over 130 ultras and and, and marathons and uh, 100 milers. So yeah, go and check out my experience coaching services. Uh, And finally, I'd just like to mention my GoFundMe that I've created to help raise some funds for a, a crew to come and support me in America. These things aren't cheap and um yeah any think is appreciated you know the price of a cup of coffee that can be found um in the show notes all the links to everything uh, we've spoken about is in the show notes and obviously of course on my uh, website so yeah in the meantime uh get outside and get moving and uh, go and explore those trails <laughs>